0: Richard Dawkins is arguably one of the greatest scientists of the 20th and 21st centuries. He's written extensively about his views of evolutionary biology, helping humanity think more carefully about animal and human behavior. He's particularly noted for his advanced work in genetics and gene mapping. He is perhaps also known as one of the greatest atheists of our day. A man full of brilliance, education, and quite honestly a genius. In his book, The God Delusion, he argues that the belief in God, particularly expressed in Christianity, he takes aim particularly at Christianity, is nothing more than an evolutionary coping mechanism. Something that was meant to... Help us get through our lives. He argues that this coping mechanism. Hurts us more than it helps us. This is why in his book. The God delusion. He calls the belief in God a delusion. In his book he writes about the death of Jesus in this way. And quote. I've described atonement. Atonement the central doctrine of Christianity as vicious, sadomasodistic, and repellent. We should also, he writes, dismiss it as barking mad. How can a man of such brilliance, ingenuity, and of a genius mind write something so dumb? As the God delusion. So illogical at times. Seemingly from our perspective. So confused about what really matters in life. How could someone so brilliant. Have such a fatal view of life. We are born. We live. And we die. With nothing. Well, so is the mind of such atheists today. How can those that have such great intelligence sometimes say some of the most silly things? Well, as we think more about that, think about more carefully how one can be an unbeliever. Oftentimes, our perspective as Christians, I think, as time goes on, we we sort of forget how fallen we were, how broken we were, how much our minds were fully infected by sin. So this morning, we want to think particularly about our own sin and how Christ has rescued us, what Christ has saved us from. And so let's go and spend the next hour in our own delusions thinking about Christ. But before we do, I want us to think about where we've been. After the last few weeks, we've been considering the local church, particularly thinking about unity in the local church, thinking about how Christ has called us as a body. And today we're going to return uh, to really the the theme or idea that Paul began in chapter 4 and verse 1. Namely, there he said that we are to walk worthy of our calling to which we have been called. The word walking there is the word that Paul is going to use throughout chapters 4, 5, and 6 to describe the customary living of the Christian life. In other words, if you've been around, that's sort of Christian lingo, right? How's your walk with Jesus, right? That's Christian lingo. Uh, lingo. Uh, the, the idea is, is how is your character? Does your character reflect Christ? Now we want to be careful there, right? Because we've seen historically Christians distort what we mean by Christian character. For example, um, if you got a tattoo in previous generations, that was seen as unchristian. But it's not true. It's not unbiblical. It's not wrong. There's no no, uh, law preventing that in the New Testament. Or, for example, listening to rock music in in previous generations was seen as unchristian-like. You you see how man's laws and man's rules became what was Christ-like and what was not? And I could name off and rattle off a, a, a lot more. But what we want to think particularly in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is is what does does the Bible call us to in Christian character? Uh, Who is Christ and how are we to reflect him better in our lives? And so Paul here is pointing to Christian living, how we pursue following Christ. And so the question for you this morning and in the weeks ahead is does your life Does your living reflect Christ's likeness? Do your lives match the high calling that Christ has called you to? Before going on to specifics, Paul wants to, I think, ground us in some... Before he goes on to sort of specifics, and we'll look at specifics next week and the weeks ahead. Before he does, I think he wants to ground us theologically lest we get too far ahead of ourselves. One, Paul's point here in verses 17 through 24, and we're going to just consider a few of them this morning, is to make clear that before we can live transformed lives, we have to have transformed minds. Oftentimes, and I mentioned this last week, that we as a church wrongly aim at the heart, but the Bible tells us to aim at the mind. That's what we're doing here in this moment, in the preaching moment. I'm not so much trying to motivate you in the heart, but to rather, through the scriptures, change your mind. Not to my opinions about how life should be lived, but to change your opinion about how life should be lived according to the scriptures. And so that's what we're going to think about this morning. How you and I need to stop living like atheists and start living like, like God's... People, So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 17 this morning. It's, it's found, rather, on page 978 in the Pew Bibles. 978 in the Black Pew Bibles. If you have one of the red ones, you're on your own. I have no idea. All right? Ephesians 4.17. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord. About this point. That Christians are new creations in Christ. Therefore, they need to put away their old way of living. By renewing their minds to reflect the new man, Jesus Christ. We want to think this morning about how our minds need to be renewed. And so the argument for you this morning as an unbeliever or as a believer, is to convince you that your mind needs to be fixed. That what Christ has saved you from is your mind. That your brain, your thinking, is flawed, fatally flawed. That before Christ rescued us, that our thinking didn't need to be just reoriented, but it needed to be radically reshaped. And so this morning we want to think about how our sin, particularly our minds, have imprisoned us in sin. Now before I get to the sort of outline of it, I want us to consider the big picture. I I want to consider the main idea of the text. So before we dive into the outline, I want you to see Paul's main exhortation. And from that, like hooks that you hang your coat on, Paul hangs Three uh, words that sort of hang from this main exhortation. Verse 17, look with me there. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. The main exhortation here is stop walking, no longer walk this way. Paul here is using, of course, that term I just defined of walking. uh, The customary living of your life. The the way you live. So the other translations use the word live there. Uh, No longer live as the Gentiles live. So Paul isn't telling them to stop walking, but to walk in a different way. Walk in a different way. Paul writes, now this I say and testify in the Lord. I want you to notice first about this exhortation uh, that he says... That they are to not walk as the Gentiles walk. I want you to see that Paul is making clear. uh, The contrast that he's setting up. He's going to contrast the lives of the world. With the lives of the believer. Notice here the foundation of his appeal. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. He appeals to his apostolic authority. I say. He's saying I'm saying this. You know, John Mark isn't saying this. Timothy's not saying this. I'm saying this. He's making clear that what he's about to say, you need to kind of listen up to. It's kind of like in a sermon. Here's what happens. I know. I know. You don't have to tell me. You fall asleep halfway through the sermon. And then Rod tells one of those good stories he likes to tell, right? And you wake up. You put your head up. This is what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, you might have fallen asleep with what I was just talking about, about unity in the local church. But I want to wake you back up for a minute and warn you about a danger you might be in. And so he makes a solemn charge to them. The word testify there emphatically means to warn. Uh, the New American Standard translates the passage this way. I affirm together with the Lord. And so what he's doing is saying, I am affirming this message with not only my apostolic authority, but with Jesus. Right? So he appeals to the Lordship of Christ. And, and just a side note, when you see Paul use interchangeable words, Paul isn't doesn't have like favorite names for Jesus like he's not like Jesus and then sometimes he calls him by his nickname Christ and then sometimes by his other nickname Lord but rather he is making a theological point when he uses that word Lord there's a reason why Paul says Lord and not Jesus he says I want you to understand that this charge comes from the Lord and his lordship from the king that we sang about earlier And that is, you're to behave this certain way because the boss told you to. And so there's no wiggle room in the text. Paul is emphatically clear that if you do not abandon your formal way, you will die. Paul is clarifying the wheat from the chaff. Paul is making clear who's in and who's out. So that all those that are gathered in Ephesus could know in that gathering who are the true followers of Jesus and who are not. And we do the same here. We practice a thing called church membership. We practice a thing that only those who have repented and believed, who are regenerate, who live a life that exemplifies Christ, can be members of the local church. And we will remove anyone who lives contrary to Scripture. Not because we don't love them, but because we want to be clear with them that if you don't follow Jesus, you die. You die. Paul will use similar language here, similar argument, this sort of imploring argument, this very strong argument in chapter 5 and verse 5. Just look there very quickly with me. Look at this very, I mean, you want to think about something this morning. You want to go home just sort of meditating with the fear of God. Chapter 5, verse 5 is the verse. For you may be sure of this, right? There's that emphatic statement again. "You You better be clear about one thing, he says. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, I want you to be clear. You might be hearing a soft gospel. You might be hearing a soft message that God is love and he doesn't care how you live. But let me be clear. He says, you have no inheritance with Christ if you live such a way. I want you to see. I want you to back at our verse in verse 17. I want you to notice, secondly, who they were to stop living like. Paul writes, stop living like Gentiles do. Stop living like the Gentiles. Now, as you think about the the message for a minute, you got to stop. And I think pause. Wait a minute. What do you mean? Stop living like Gentiles. We're Gentiles, Paul. What do you mean? We're to stop living like Gentiles. We are Gentiles. You're a Jew. We're a Gentile. Now, Paul's point here, I think, is twofold. It's kind of dualistic. Number one, I think first in the clear reading of the text it is this. He's not comparing Jews and Gentiles as he did in chapter two. But rather, he's comparing believers and unbelievers. He's essentially saying, stop living like unbelievers. Now, many modern evangelical translations translate the passage this way, uh, but many don't. And here's why, for the second reason. I want you to get this. Why don't modern evangelical translations translate the word unbeliever? Because it would miss, I think, the even greater point. He is saying to them, In the context of this this paragraph, stop living like you used to. Stop. That's not who you are anymore. You're not a Gentile anymore. You're a new creation of Christ. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. That was the whole argument of chapter 2. Chapter 2 was Jew and Gentile. There's no longer Jews and Gentiles. There's one man, new man in Christ, right? That was the whole argument of chapter 2. And he... Kind of fleshes that out in application. It says, stop living like you used to. That's not you anymore. You are new in Christ. And in light of that, he wants to, I think, paint us a very vivid picture of life without God. He wants to hold up. Now, now to be clear, all of these readers that would have been reading this text and hearing this text read in the church in Ephesus, they would have remembered, just as you remember today, how you used to live. They would have known that they used to spend their time down at the temple. They would have remembered all those sacrifices to idols. They would have remembered worshiping the great Artemis. They would have remembered all of those things. And so Paul's point here isn't to stir up bad memories, but to stir them to action to run as fast as they can from the life they have been rescued from. And so this morning, I want us to look very quickly uh, at three points, three differences between believers and unbelievers. I'll point out the three words to you. These three participles hang off of the main exhortation. They are found in verses 18 and 19. Darkened in their understanding. First one. Alienated from the life of God. Second one. And then the third one found in verse 19. They have become callous. Those three words describe the differences between believers and unbelievers. First, we think differently. Secondly, we respond to the truth differently. Thirdly, we act differently. Those are the three points I want us to consider this morning. Our thinking, our response to the truth, and our actions. Let's look first in verses 17 through 18. That believers think differently. We think differently than the world. Notice how Paul describes here in this text. The thinking of unbelievers. Verse 17 he says. In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Throughout this paragraph. You can see. Through verses 17 through 24. A repetition of the word Mind, or cognates that relate to the word mind, like thinking or understanding or reasoning. Notice with me, futility of mind, darkened in understanding. Verse 18, the second half, ignorance in them, uh, giving themselves up. He goes on, he says, uh, he talks about believing the truth, being taught, right? That has to do with thinking, your mind is taught, right? Your heart isn't taught, your mind is taught. And then notice the exhortation there in 23. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So again, I want you to see that what Paul is aiming at in this text is your head. It's your mind. It's your thinking. That as Christians, our thinking is different. It's different. It's different. How is it different? Paul illustrates here. First, it's We're not futile. The word futile there means a state of being without use or value. It's empty. It's purposelessness. The New Living Translation says it this way, hopelessly confused. Doesn't that describe our world? I mean, if you just take a moment and read the headlines tomorrow morning. Hopelessly confused. We can't figure out what's a girl and what's a boy. We can't figure out what marriage is. We can't figure out basic things in our society. We are hopelessly confused. This word is the same word that we heard Pastor Rod preach a few weeks ago. The word vanity. It's exactly what it means. Vanity. It is a a total attitude about life that is worthless. It's a worthless mind. In Romans chapter 1 verse 21 Paul says this about the human mind. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They have, he says, a debased mind. So our fundamental problem this morning is our head. Our mind is infected with sin. It is broken and beyond repair. This is why we need a new head. We need Christ because we need new minds, renewed minds. When we come to faith in Christ, our thinking begins to change. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen over a lifetime. We begin to think more maturely, not because we're older, but because Jesus is changing the way we see the world, the way we view things. This is why as Christians, we should be growing less and less, for example, materialistic. Our culture loves material things. It loves to worship things that it can touch. Well, friend, if you struggle with that, just go and meditate on Jeremiah 10. And you will see the futility of worshiping things that you hammer out little phones that you put together and you stare at all day. I mean, I think this qualifies as Jeremiah 10. You worship these things. You try to take a phone away from a teenager, you better watch your arms. They might chop it off. But not only are minds futile, notice what he goes on, and it's sort of a spiraling argument. He says that they are darkened in their understanding. Not only are their minds pointless and futile, but they are dark in their minds. Their minds are understanding their thinking the way that they think about life. And, and what's good and what's right and what's wrong is dark. The imagery is clear, isn't it? Walking in a dark world. Unable to see where we're going. Paul describes their thinking process, their rationality, as trying to fumble around in the darkness. Now, this does not mean that unbelievers cannot comprehend truth, that they do not come to logical conclusions, that they're all ignorant, right? There are some really smart people. Richard Dawkins is a really smart dude, okay? So we're not arguing this morning and saying that unbelievers, atheists, and the like are idiots. But we're saying that they're thinking Has fallen short of God's glory. Paul will say it this way. In Ephesians chapter 2. That we were dead. In our trespasses and sins. In which we once walked, Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work. in the sons of disobedience. Peter O'Brien. Commenting on this text. He says it this way. Because it lacks. That is the, the mind. Lacks a true relationship with God. Gentiles. Thinking suffers from the consequences of having lost touch with reality and is left fumbling with inane trivialities and worthless side issues. In other words, they can't stay in their lane. They're distracted and pursue silly things. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want you to know because I love you that this is how the Bible describes you. Dark In your thinking. You might think this morning that you have attained great intelligence because of your education. Or because people around you tell you that you are wise. And smart. And intelligent. You might think of yourself as a real innovator today. But friend, the Bible makes a very clear and devastating indictment upon your mind. It is dark. And it is broken. And it needs to be made new. You think that you are going the right way, the way forward, but you are grasping in a dark in darkness and you need to come to the light. Friends, this is why we need Jesus Christ alone. His mind was fully informed and fully reflected a mind who is right. There was only one man who had a right mind upon him, and that was Jesus he knows all and believes all, and he 's the model for us as believers of what thinking looks like. To reflect that better, you can consider the way Jesus dealt with people and the way he thought about conf- conflict, the way he thought about difficult situations, and the way he thought about the way he thought about God. Brothers and sisters. The point is clear. We are to think differently than the world. This does not mean that we don't agree with the world at many points, but that fundamentally our thinking, our conclusions are different. There are many things that we can agree about, but many things. The point Paul is making here is to contrast, rather, spiritually enlightened with those who think with darkened minds. He wants you to see... How foolish you were in your thinking. How silly you were in the things you pursued. But to encourage us with hope. To remind us that we have been rescued. That our minds have been rescued. That we have been set free. Brother or sister, I wonder how has your thinking been more infected again by the world rather than being transformed by the Word. You see, every day, messages are being bombarded at your head. Every day, through the things you absorb, you're like a little sponge. Just like kids, you absorb it all. Whether it be the whispers of an unbelieving spouse, whether it be the, 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 the quiet words of the television, whether it be the things that you're reading, In popular culture or in the news. I can testify and I'm sure many of us can testify to you. That the more you hang out with the world passively. Letting that stuff absorb into your mind. The more you begin to think like the world again. And the only way that you can get your bearings right. That you can get your direction on Jesus. Is by spending time regularly in the word. The word tells us that that's... a. We went to VBS. You learned it. The Bible is a light unto my feet. Right? It's a light. You can see. You have a dark mind. Your mind needs to be enlightened. The word enlightens your mind. It reminds you, for example, it's picking on materialism, that you don't deserve everything. You don't need everything. What's the Bible say? It says, the Father will give you everything you need. You don't need to worry about those things. Those are clarifying times. As a church, how is our thinking? How do we think more like the world in terms of church growth? Do we want to run a church like a business? Brother, that's sad, sad worldly thing. How do we look at problems as a congregation? How do we look at challenges? How do we look at trials and pain and sorrow? Do we think about them in worldly ways or in biblical ways? Are trials something to be avoided? Are trials just something to get through? Friend, that's the way the world thinks. The trials are meant to endure. Because trials... Teach you to love Jesus more. This is how our mind needs to be renewed. By pointing us to God's wisdom and not to, to man's. And so as Christians, our thinking distinguishes us from unbelievers. Our minds are being renewed day by day through the word of Christ. But not only is our thinking differently. Paul points us to another difference. Namely, how we respond to the truth. It's one thing to know the truth of the Bible. It's one thing to sort of rattle off a bunch of truths about God. I know some of us may be really good at that. You, You can quote chapter and verse about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the question is, is how do you respond to that truth? You understand that there are secular scholars that know the Bible better than many of us. But they do not know the God of the Bible. And so as Christians, we respond to the truth about God differently. That's Paul's point here in chapter uh, 4, verse 18. Look there with me again. Verse 18, he continues, alienated. We we could add the, the, the pronoun they. They, that is the unbelievers, are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. The main idea here is alienated from God. Paul returns to a f- familiar theme to us, right? Back to chapter 2. Back to chapter 2 in verse uh, verse 11. He says, therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that at one time you we separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul returns to this theme of alienation. Before God rescued us, we were alienated from God. We were estranged from life from God. And the aspect of the verbal idea that Paul has here about alienated has sort of a perfect tense. It's it's not that, that you were, but that you are still alienated apart from Christ. It's a sort of abiding position, abiding state for the unbelievers. Unbelievers are alienated from the life of God. They are estranged from God's blessings. And they continue in a state of separation. Paul will make a similar point in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. He writes, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He says, that's who you once were. You were alienated. Now, now why would Paul make such a point? Well, I think that it's clear. So often, as Christians, we are tempted to look at the world To look at apparent successes of the world and say and conclude from that, that if I just act like the world, I will also be blessed. Friends, this is the syndrome that the nation of Israel had. This was their primary issue. They wanted to be more like Canaanites than Israelites. They wanted to be more like the cosmopolitan world that they lived in than being faithful servants of God. And what happened? God, by His grace, gave them over to it. Hey, you want to do dumb things like murder your children? Go for it. If you want to go and sacrifice to wood and and things made by hands, go for it. Alienated from God's life. Notice here in the text that Paul points to two reasons why they've been alienated from God, and I want to make very clear from the front end, lest I forget to say it, that all of this points to their culpability. Paul's argument here is to say that God didn't make it make you do it. Nobody made you sin. You willingly went into sin. All right, and that's true of you, believer, this morning. Before Jesus came in your life, no one forced your hand. Was well, it because your parents were really bad is it because you wanted to sin now these two reasons that he gives here in verse eighteen notice notice what the mean both of them first because of the ignorance that's in them and secondly due to their hardness of heart Paul here isn't putting together two parallel reasons but rather more like a spiraling effect so if you read the text backwards you know like those old you know Uh, Vinyls, you could read it backwards and get secret messages. Um, You could read this text backwards and get a better sense of what he's arguing here. Uh, Let's do it this way. Due to their hardness of hearts, which has resulted in ignorance in them, they've been alienated from the life of God. Stubborn hearts led to ignorant minds, which led to their alienation from God. Stubborn hearts. Literally, Sticks in the mud. That's what Paul's point is here. They were sticks in the mud. They wanted rather to live life their own way. And so Paul here is saying that believers are culpable in the state they find themselves. That they willingly hardened their hearts against God. That they willingly rebelled against him. Which has resulted in greater ignorance. Paul continues as he says there that because of the ignorances in them. Uh, To be ignorant means to lack information. Now Paul's point here isn't that they lack information about God. No, in Romans chapter 1 and 2, you can write that down, you can think about it later. Romans 1 and 2, Paul makes this argument that what can be known about God is clearly perceived intellectually by every human being on the face of this earth. Every human being. There is no proverbial innocent person living on an island that has never heard about God. The Bible is very clear in many places. Romans 1 and 2, Psalm 19, we could go elsewhere. That creation reveals God to us. It tells us that there is a creator, a divine being who created us. And that we are to obey him. But what Paul argues back in Romans 1 and 2. Is that though God could be clearly perceived. That man willingly ignored it. Right? It's like driving down the road. And you see the the stop sign. It says stop. But you cruise on through it. Now you wouldn't say that you didn't know how to read. You know how to read. It says stop. That means stop but you willingly ignored it. That's what ignorance is, right? It's to know the truth, but ignore it. And so in that argument, Paul says that that they suppress the truth so that they find themselves in a state of ignorance. So it's not a lack of knowledge, but a willful ignorance of things of God. Unbelievers are well informed about God, but yet willingly choose to live In disobedience, Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on the text, helpfully writes, knowledge has to do with an obedient and grateful response of the whole person, not simply intellectual assent. Likewise, ignorance is a failure to be grateful and obedient. Friends, this is why we want to be very clear about the gospel. Listen to me very clearly. The gospel and response to the gospel is not you downloading in your brain a bunch of facts about God. That's not the gospel. So you might be able to come up here and, and tell everyone God, man, Christ response. You know, that's sort of four points that we often talk about the gospel. You might know all of those and understand those, but friends, let me remind you what James says. That even the demons believe in God and shudder. So having just intellectual understanding about the facts does not save you. But trusting in those facts does. Believing that those are true and trustworthy. And so as believers, what distinguishes us is how we respond to the truth about God. Unbelievers, they come, God no, thank you. Believers, God, we respond positively to. However hard it may be to understand God's word, however difficult passages may be, and friends, you know I've been reading through Judges in my devotional time, and tomorrow is Judges eighteen, and let me just say I'm not looking forward to it. Right? It, I mean, it's a tough passage. I mean, Judges is a messed up, but it's a messed up book. If you want to see human depravity, you just read Judges. You see human depravity on display. And it isn't Sodom and Gomorrah. It's in Israel. And that's the point. It's hard. It's hard to understand. But but what distinguishes believers from unbelievers is how we respond to the truth. That we accept it as true and trustworthy. Uh, For example, if the Bible says that God will eternally punish people for their rebellion... In a literal place called hell, we believe that. And we live in fear of God because of that. How do you respond to the truth about God? Consider how our culture responds to the truth about sexual sin. How is this culture sought to redefine sin? Uh, Friend, do you find it, brother, sister, do you find it embarrassing that the Bible teaches that homosexuals will go to hell? if they do not repent and believe in Jesus. Do you struggle with that? Do you wrestle knowing perhaps you have friends or family members that are living in an open rebellion against God sexually? Friends, you must be clear. This text is clear. Ephesians 5:5 5, 5 is clear that those who live active rebellion against God will not inherit the kingdom of What about the adulterer? What about the drunk? Friends, how has your ethics and morality been more influenced by the world? How has your heart, as Paul says, become more hard? Hard Hard-hearted? An unwillingness to budge? A hard heart is a... F.F. Bruce writes this, A hard heart is is the progressive inability of conscience to convict them of wrong. Friend, how has your conscience been been seared, been hardened to this world than the truth of God's word? As Christians, we respond to the truth about God, who he is and who we are differently than the unbelievers. Finally, here we see thirdly in verse 19 that as believers, we act differently. Paul's final word that he uses there in verse 19 is that they have become callous they've become callous the word callous is all too familiar to us right we have them on our hands we have them on our feet and perhaps we have them on our hearts to become callous means to to be without feeling to not feel something i I remember as a kid growing up watching my grandparents take their blood sugar all the time although it was cool i was like hey yeah, i want to try that and I remember, you know, watching them do it. They were just like, shh, no big deal. They did it, right? Some of you all I know take your blood sugar regularly. And I would watch them do it. i be like, I want to do that. And they would take that tiny little needle and put the biggest hole in my finger. <laughs> I'd cry. Like, ah, that hurt. Tiny little needle. Ni- what made it so painful is I didn't have calluses. I actually had nerves in my fingers. They, theirs were all calloused over from repeated repetitions, repeated strikes, right? Brothers and sisters, what Paul is arguing in this text is that the more you hang out with this world, the more you will become callous and hard to the truth of God's word. This is why so many in the world seemingly are impenetrable by the word of Christ. Because their hearts are calloused. They're calloused over, they're, they're calcified in their sin. And their fingers and their souls and their hearts have become numb to the gospel. Literally the word means to be dead to feeling without a sense of right or wrong, blind, leading blindness. Leading them blindly into hopeless vices. Paul writes this to Timothy. He says about the unbelieving world that through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Friends, this text reminds us that sin will never satisfy. we see here in the text that he says that they are greedy To practice every kind of impurity. Uh, The Christian standard Bible says it this way. They can't get enough. A callous heart creates in us a desire for sin. That can never be satisfied. Friends sin is, is like junk food. It's empty calories. It's good for a moment. But it does not last. Reality hits. Pain and sorrow follow. Frankly, sin is not something our bodies was created for. Sin is always an alien to God's good creation, but yet we continually embrace him. Notice here he he has three vices that characterize their former lives. They were living lives of sensuality, impurity, and greed. Paul describes a life characterized by total abandonment. And deadly decline into the depths of depravity. Mark my words. This is a vile picture of life without God. It is a horrid picture. They have become callous and given themselves up. Notice here the culpability again. Now in Romans 2, Paul says that God gave them over to these things. And here, he has the flip side of the same coin. He says, well, well actually, they gave themselves up to it willingly. They wanted it. And so God gave it to them. It's a little truth for you. God will always give you what you want. If you want to live in rebellion against him, but by his grace, he rescues us from that. By his grace, he rescues us from what we want. Verse 19 again, look here. They have become callous and have given themselves up to these three things, sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Sensuality here, uh, most scholars believe Paul is pointing to the sexual sins which were pervasive in the Greco-Roman culture. You know, so sadly, so many times I hear Christians, they're like, man, man, things are getting worse. No, things are not getting worse. The unbelieving world is just doing what the unbelieving world's always done. And that is this, to try to come up with new pervasive and perverse ways to sin against God. That's it. That's all it is. Right? Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. All we're doing as a culture, for example, and all we did as unbelievers is try to come up with new ways to sin against God. Paul highlights here the sins of a sexual nature because that's what the Ephesian church would have been known for. He would have been talking to people who were prostitutes at the temple. He would have been talking to women who would have regularly went to the temple to be with prostitutes. He would have been talking to people who would have spent their life in grotesque sexual sin. Some that would even make our culture blush at. They would have not been embarrassed, I don't believe. To read headlines that we read today about drag queens reading to our children in public libraries. They would have been like, oh, that's a great idea. We're going to start doing that next week. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is to make clear that this is not how you're to live. Stop living like the world around them. Again, O'Brien is helpful here. He writes The pagan world, excuse me, the pagan way of life was characterized by an insatiable desire to participate in more and more forms of immorality. Ultimately, it becomes a vicious circle because new perversions must be sought to replace the old. Friend, you get to see that every day in our culture as we live. And the point I want you to take home this morning is how has your heart become callous to sin again? As a believer, has your your views been softened by this world? What embarrasses you? Can you read certain things and watch certain things without embarrassment? Friend, if you can, I want to warn you that I fear your heart has become hard again. Just recently, a a well-known Christian author and writer spoke out very clearly about a very popular uh, show that is all the rage. And there was a scene in this particular show in the very first season, in the very first episode, maybe one or two in. I, don't, I think maybe in the first. One. And he shut off the show immediately. And his conclusion was this. Why would I want to watch something that my teenage children would be participating in and watch it for entertainment? Friend, what are you being entertained by? Are you entertained the way the world is entertained? Are you consumed with the same kind of entertainment that our world finds entertaining in sexual immorality? How are you guarding your eyes from sin? Friends, how we act distinguishes us from the unbelieving world. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you with this truth that you are new creations in Christ. Therefore, we need to regularly put away our old living. We need lives and minds that are transformed by God's word. We need to respond to the truth of God's word positively and not negatively. We need to embrace all that the Bible says about us. Do you look fondly upon your past? Do you hang your head in shame and and discouragement because of your past sins? Paul's point, again, is not to shame you, but to encourage you, to bring you into repentance and trust that he has rescued you from this life. Do you think differently? Do you respond to the truth differently? Do you act differently than this world? Let us remember these words that one pastor wrote. Sin is enslaving it is degenerative, and it is damaging. I conclude with this story. This past week, Dr. Al Mohler started his briefing again, and he had a great story that I particularly wanted to share that was fitting. He told a story about the Tour de France, and in the Tour de France, uh, which just took place last week and the weeks earlier, it's bicycle rides right through the countryside of France, very scenic and beautiful. We told the story about these two men that every morning early in the morning before the sun comes out had to go out and uh, with white paint and paint obscene pictures and political uh, messages that had been painted overnight on the roads uh, through throughout the tour de France there are uh, cameras above the the, the track, uh, above the road. And and so people would go out and write these obscene pictures on it, and they could be seen by the aerial cameras. And so in order uh, that those don't show up, of course, on our television, uh, these men would go out and take their white paint and wash them away. Every morning, for the three weeks of the Tour de France. And he makes a very helpful conclusion from that, that no amount of whitewashing will ever cover our sin. That no amount of good deeds, money given, or church attendance will ever be able to whitewash your soul. As that old song reminds us, what can wash away our sin but the blood of Jesus? Friend, this morning, if you are in despair because Paul has described your life, well, friend, let me encourage you to repent and believe in Christ, and he will this moment wash away all your sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have received in Christ. And as we gather around the table of the Lord this morning, we are particularly thankful that we know that the blood has washed away our sin, that the life of Christ was for our life, that his death was the death we deserved, that we might have new life in him. Lord, as we celebrate together the table of the Lord, may we be reminded of what we've been rescued from, from life to death, and it is our life to live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as our ushers come forward to begin to prepare us for communion, I want to just give us a number of of instructions for communion. Uh, Namely, who is this supper for? Um, and, And I want you to pay particularly important to these instructions because they matter eternally on Judgment Day. The Bible is clear that the Lord's Supper is meant to be eaten by believers those whom have repented of their sins and trusted in jesus so if you rightly understand the same gospel that you heard preached this morning and you've believed in christ you understand yourself to be a christian and you've been baptized as a christian upon your profession of faith someone baptized you a church then you are welcome to participate in this. Now, you may not be a member of our church. That's okay. But you need to be a believer who has been baptized. Secondly, Paul warned the church in Corinth of eating in an unworthy manner. That is, living in unrepentant sin and thinking that you're a Christian. That's a dangerous place to be. To think one is a believer but yet be in unrepentant, persistent sin. And so if that describes you this morning, I would encourage you for the sake of your eternal soul to let the plate pass. No one will judge you. No one will think less of you. We will be all the more encouraged. If you do not understand yourself to be a Christian this morning, if you're still trying to figure things out, let me commend you to not partake of the supper. It, the Lord's Supper is not a means of grace. Which, what that means is, is that by eating the bread and drinking the cup, it does not make you a Christian. And if that logic follows, then not taking it doesn't make you an unchristian. All right? So it doesn't do any... You know, this is a remembrance of the life, death, and burial of Christ and our shared unity together. With those instructions in mind, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of God that we have received in Christ. As we are about to read our church covenant and be reminded of the commitments that we have for one another, to honor you through serving this body because we have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Help us, Father, to have a clear sense of unity among us as demonstrated in the common bread and the common cup. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.